Happy Martin Luther King Day, and welcome to the very first episode of Decarceration Nation, a podcast with Josh and Joel. My name is Josh Ho. I'm a former debate coach with a master's degree in international relations. I also feel like I received a second advanced degree in criminal justice reform from my three years in the state prison system in Michigan. I'm currently a freelance writer and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Living Hope. Joel? I'm Joel Barson. Uh, I've been working in the affordable housing and supportable... Supportable is fine. Go for it. Supportive housing field for many years. Um, This work has brought me into contact with many impacted by the criminal justice system and makes me anxious to understand how what its flaws are and its potential remedies, uh, which is why I'm glad to know you, Josh, because you've helped me to see these issues more clearly. I hope that these conversations we're going to be having are a chance for me to deepen my understanding and hopefully even be part of the process of positive change. Cool. So where do you want to start us off, Joel? You're kind of running the... Yeah, sure. Um, gosh, what a pleasure um, to be uh, diving into this, Josh. Um, since we've met, we go to the same church, which is where we initially um, found each other. Um, my uh, experience, my understanding um, of how troubled our system is has um, has gotten that much more vexing. It's incredibly alarming how inhumane, inefficient, um, and cruel um, uh, our system of incarceration is. And, and well, I think I had inclinations of that before you and I met, um, my understanding of that is, um, is more profound having met you. And I just want to thank you at the outset for sharing your life story with me. Um, uh, your experience with the criminal justice system and your deep um, learning uh, of these subjects. Thanks, man. So, <laughs> I wish I'd found it. I wish I'd gotten my learning a different way, but <laughs> right. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Um, so, to sort of get us rolling, um, maybe you could give us uh, for those who haven't had the benefit of. Um, friendship with you, knowing you, um, hearing your story before, um, talking about uh, what motivated you to get into criminal justice reform, um, your background, your experience, what led you up to this moment? Yeah, so, you know, when I, the, the ironic thing about it all is that before I got arrested, I would have considered myself to be somewhat, not, not a legal expert, but a pretty expert in constitutional law. Uh, at least for a layperson, you know, through being a debate coach and a former debater, we had legal topics a lot. And so I spent, you know, hundreds of hours reading court decisions and Supreme Court decisions for a really long time in my life. And so I thought I really understood uh, the basis of the criminal justice system. And I think everybody probably has some experience with this because I know a lot of people who like watch shows, for instance, like Law and Order or, and they kind of get a feeling for how the justice systems works. And I think I had that feeling too, a kind of romantic system, a, a romantic idea of how our system works. And uh, then I got arrested in 2010. And uh, through that experience of going to jail, going through the justice system and ending up in prison for uh, three years, 
I kind of got to see it all up close and see how it really works. And as much as I was upset for myself, uh, there are some things that you see as you're going through the system that are just so troubling that it's almost impossible, or at least it was for me, not to want to become a, an advocate for criminal justice reform in a larger picture, not just for my own case, but for all the thing, all the people that I've seen and all the situations that I've seen that were really deeply troubling to me. It, it seems uh, like to the casual observer, clearly um, that process, the criminal justice process, uh, jail, prison, um, it doesn't look pleasant from the outside, right? And, and uh, I would think that most people think it's not supposed to be pleasant. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess I'm curious what, um, what your first experience, you talked about it being very, very troubling, and I'm thinking that it was troubling beyond what your expectations were going in, that's what you said. And I, when you went through that experience, what was the first sign to you that it was far worse than you had guessed or imagined or learned or read about? Well, I mean, most of it at first kind of followed the path that I probably would have predicted. Uh, you end up in a holding cell, usually for a very long period of time, which is kind of a long, slender room, uh, you know, that can have anywhere from one to 30 people in it. It's a very small place. Uh, and there's a lot of people that, you know, if you are, you know, I'm, you know, a middle-aged white guy, you know, who had no experience with the uh, criminal justice system prior to being arrested, there's a certain amount of terror in being in a small space with a lot of other people who, while you don't know this, you have your fears and apprehensions. And so, you know, that kind of stuff was expected. The police being kind of rude was expected. Uh, things that weren't expected, you know, I mean, one of the first thing that happened when I went to jail, when I first got arrested, uh, you know, some of the things that, uh, you know, the first thing I, the really the literally first thing I remember is that they, you know, when they first came into my apartment, you know, I asked to go put on a pair of pants and they wouldn't let me do it. So I had to sit there for like, you know, 40 minutes in my underwear in front of like 13 people as they searched my apartment. And eventually they gave me a pair of pants uh, and then I went to sit in a holding cell for a long time. Uh, the second thing that I really remember uh, in particular was once, so when you first get to jail, they'll ask you a set of questions. And one of the questions is, are you depressed? And I hadn't really had an experience with being in jail before. So uh, I answered the question. I thought it was a logical answer at the time, yes. I am. I am a little depressed. I'm sort of down. This is probably the worst day of my entire life, you know, which is pretty, I think, reasonable if you've never been arrested before and now you're facing, you know, at least some time. And, uh, you know, so I'm sitting there and I think, okay, nothing much of it. And you sit there for a while and then they come to, to process you to take you to wherever you're going to go beyond the holding cell. And they took me to this area and they gave me this weird, you know, I saw all these other people in the jumpsuits that you've seen on Orange is the New Black or whatever television shows you watch. Uh, but they took me and they gave me this other thing that was like a green padded suit with just Velcro closures. And I found out later it's called a Bam Bam suit. And they took me to a, a plexiglass enclosed uh, cell. Uh, and there was a, a block of cells like that. And it was freezing cold. And you, could, you know, they could see us from all four sides. 
and uh, you know there were some bunk beds and we were in the bunk beds and all you were in this plastic cell and there was nothing else going on and they'd given you no explanation for why you were there and it turns out the suicide watch cell and the reason that I was there is because I had answered this question incorrectly uh, so that that was a kind of the beginning of where I was like there's some really Kafka-esque elements to this that I wasn't really aware of and after you've spent a couple days in a plexiglass glass cell with a bunch of people watching you but not talking to you where you don't really totally understand what's going on and it's freezing cold and you're just like, what in the world is going on here? Uh, you don't have anything to do. You don't have anything to read. Sometimes there's people there. Sometimes there's not. Uh, that was pretty troubling. And then uh, from there, I got moved to uh, a regular cell on the mental health wing until they had a psychologist or psychiatrist that could evaluate me. And that's when things really, to me, started to, to be extremely troubling. Uh, and the reason for this is because you, I found that I was in lockdown for 23 hours a day. Uh, and you might have a cellmate, you might not have a cellmate. And so you come out for one hour a day to either make phone calls or to take a shower. And remember, this is for people who have mental health problems. And so if you think about that for a second, you know, you're taking people who are already having a really hard time and you're putting them in a room 23 hours a day. And you say, OK, maybe that's temporary, not that big of a deal. Uh, if you've ever been in a room locked in for 23 hours a day, you know, it's a little more of a big deal, especially with nothing to do, no books, no television. No, you know, it, it's a little bit of a it's a mentally challenging activity even to spend a day like that. But in my time, I was only in the mental health part of the facility for a short period of time, you know, probably three or four days until I bonded out. I met people, uh, I wasn't really supposed to, but I met people who had been in solid, in that 23-hour solitary situation for over a year. Uh, and that was really, really upsetting to me. And it still is really upsetting to me. Um, you know, I think I feel like it's our responsibility as human beings to look out for people who are having struggles, especially mental health struggles that aren't entirely of their own design. And to see people locked in solitary with nothing to do, nothing to read and no one to talk to for 23 hours a day for years uh, as they wait full adjudication uh, it's pretty upsetting to me. And that's, you know, I've probably seen a hundred things since then, and I'm sure we'll cover all of them at some point. But that was really my introduction to the, to the cruelty of the system. Uh, now, uh, I was telling you earlier when we were chatting that, you know, there's a story I like to tell about my time there in that jail, in that mental health wing. I met the, uh, when I talked to the psychologist, she got me out pretty quickly. She realized I was just, you know, I was depressed, but not clinically depressed. Uh, and uh, later, after I got sentenced, I went back to the same jail, which is the Macomb Jail, which is kind of a notorious jail in the Michigan system. Uh, so I went back there and I ran into her again. And so I asked her, uh, you know, I just have one question. What, you know, you're a professional. You seem very competent. We had a good conversation. You seem like a nice enough person. What, how does it help anyone with a mental health problem to be locked down 23 hours a day for over a year? And she sat there and you could see there was a little bit of, it troubled her a little bit, but then she looked at me and she just said, it's not optimal. And that's kind of the way I've defined, 
kind of the bureaucratic indifference to the cruelty of the criminal justice system? Is this person telling me it's not optimal? Who is a professional in that field and probably should be doing better? You know, or at least finding a way to fight the system that she's a part of. Right, no doubt, no doubt. In, in a second, I wanna circle back and get to the notion of decarceration nation um, and where that title came from. But before we sort of work our way to that, I wanna get out of the way something that might be on the minds of some folks um, who hear this for the first time, sort of a, a devil's advocate uh, position to your premise, which seems natural, certainly seems natural to me, that um, that everyone deserves to be treated humanely. Um, and that seems foundational, <laughs> without even getting to the question of what's best for society, um, what's most cost-effective, and, and those more utilitarian questions. But, um, you know, what would you say to someone who is tuning in, hearing the first few minutes of this and sort of disagreeing with the premise that it's supposed to be uh, optimal. Um, someone who says this is meant to be unpleasant. Maybe unpleasant even isn't even strong enough a word for what some people might say. They might say it's meant to be uncomfortable, even um, awful. Um, what would you say to those folks? Well, I mean, there's a lot of levels to the answer to that question. Uh, I think the first level is, since we were talking about people who are having mental health struggles, I think if you believe that people who have mental, you know, I don't like to use the term mental illness, but are struggling with what probably is some form of an illness, that they're fully responsible for their own behavior, to me, is questionable. So to see people who, you know, sometimes don't even know who they are or where they are treated like subhumans is a real problem to me. So even if you believed 100% that everybody else in prisoner jail deserves to be you know, treated terribly, I'm pretty sure those people don't deserve to be treated terribly. Uh, because you know, at least to some level, even if it's not, you know, we've got this weird legal standard about, about mental illness, which is that uh, if you know right from wrong, then you're legally culpable. That might be true, but that doesn't mean that you are totally in control of your own actions or totally at a point where you understand your own actions. You may know that something you did was bad, but that doesn't mean you're not having problems with impulse control or you're not having problems with, you know, and so, yeah, they might be, you know, from a legal standpoint culpable, but I don't think from a clinical standard standpoint they're, they're culpable in a lot of ways. And even if they are, I think there's, a, there's some other level of care that we should probably keep. But, you know, I mean, on a larger level, I think the first thing I should say is that the, to me, and I think to most criminal justice reform advocates, the real punishment from prison is not being free, you know, is being shut in, being unable to do the things that you want to do. Uh, because there's so many different levels of crime and so many different levels of, you know, whatever you're going to say, you know, just the fact that you don't have the ability to leave mm -hmm. is a pretty, unless you've experienced it, it's very hard to explain. But even now, after all the things I've seen, to me, the most overwhelming thing that affected me while I was in prison was the inability to leave and to know that even when someone visited me, you know, I couldn't go with them. I couldn't go, you know, or if I'm talking to someone on the phone, I can't go see them or to, you know, 
when bad things were happening, I couldn't leave. You know, uh, that's a pretty, you know, pretty tough thing. And I think most of us think that's the, and I think, you know, constitutionally and judicially, and if you've read any of the writings of some of the, the justices when they talk about it, uh, of the Supreme Court, uh, I think that's kind of the way they look at, 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 at punishment. Now, you also have to remember that there's a wide variety of people, especially in a jail, anyone who gets arrested for anything, be it, you know, not paying fines or fees, having something wrong with your driver's license, uh, you know, doing something that didn't hurt anyone else, but just happened to be illegal. We're all in there together. And, you know, for instance, at the Macomb jail, there are multiple instances of where people have died, you know, from things that happened in, jail, in that jail. And you think about, you know, yeah, okay, maybe, I, I don't personally agree with this, but if you're a very punitive person, you say, okay, maybe that mass murderer deserves whatever they're getting in there. I'm pretty sure the guy who got too many traffic tickets doesn't deserve to die in jail. Uh, you know, I personally believe that, you know, how we treat other people is a measure of our own humanity. And so deserve really, to me, doesn't have a lot to do with it. The reason why we have incarceration is to protect society from people who are have kind of lost their society privileges. Uh, I don't necessarily agree that that should happen. I'm just saying that that's, to me, what the function is. And so just saying that the function of prison is cruelty doesn't make a lot of sense to me because it seems like uh, the same kind of... You're basically committing the same crime you're saying is a bad idea. Right, right. Uh, yeah, thank you for that. Uh, you know, I would I'd add to that that if you're, if you're coming from uh, the foundation that the purpose of criminal justice should be cruelty, then uh, that's un untenable. That's, that's not a valid uh, position um, in, in a society that wants to be evolved. Yeah, I also think one other thing's important, which is that not, over 90% of people who go to jail or prison come back. Right. And the state with which they come back, I mean, you said kind of you didn't want to talk about the consequentialism first, the, the kind of, but there are real social impacts to having people be brutalized in prison. Right. Uh, of all varieties, and yeah. uh, the, you know, the more broken someone is when they come out, you know, we should be focusing on trying to make people less broken so that when they come out, that the society is safer. Yeah, no question. So I guess that um, that leads me to wonder, in terms of your work, um, is would you say your emphasis is on uh, improving conditions for folks who are currently? Um, in that system um, so that when they come out somehow um, they are less harmed by it than they might have been or is your approach to it um, larger more global um, in terms of your reform um, notions my agenda is basically I think twofold. If I come up with a third fold, we'll talk about it. <laughs> but the first fold and, and probably the most important one is I believe deeply that from sentencing, from the day of sentencing, that prison should be a process of trying to get someone ready to return in the best possible shape they can be to be a happy, well-adjusted member of society, whatever that means. And so, you know, Whatever the problems were, whatever the, you know, that, that any, other, any other thing that prison is, is doomed to some form of failure and probably to cause 
uh, suffering. You know, we, we know that in general, 60, over 60% of all people who leave prison recidivate. And a lot of that is because the main triggers for recidivism are uh, economic insecurity, uh, housing insecurity, and maybe you could talk a little bit about your experience with housing insecurity, since you've definitely had more experience with that than I have, yeah. uh, and a lack of community connection. And so, I mean, just take a second and talk about your experience with people coming out when they come through housing. Yeah, um, I mean, you're right in every way. Um, working with folks who are in need of a decent, stable place to live, um, and how can we um, get our footing in life? Um, how can we address whatever struggles we have, um, you know, mental health-wise, economic-wise? How can we uh, get a purchase on our existence if we don't have uh, a safe place to live? Um, you know, housing is foundational to that, and in you know, for anyone who's worked in the housing field at all, um, it's readily apparent that it is um, incredibly difficult, um, almost impossible for individuals coming out of incarceration um, to find uh, decent housing, um, safe housing, um, stable, most importantly, housing. Um, one of the premises of supportive housing, which is the field I work in, is that um, shelter housing is a basic human right that everybody is entitled to, um, regardless of, um, of whatever their life circumstances are, that a person shouldn't have to earn um, a roof over their head um, that, is, uh, that they can count on, um, that they don't have to earn it with, um, with sobriety, with um, having overcome substance use disorder or, or, or having uh, vanquished mental illness or, or by having a, um, a clean criminal background. And the system is stacked against um, folks who come out of a, um, uh, you know, a, a background where there's a conviction present. Um, it's very, very hard um, to get past typical um, landlord background checks. Um, the probably the most um, egregious um, example of what I see are that uh, subsidy programs or affordable housing programs that are designed to help those who need the help the most often have restrictions uh, against those who have uh, who are coming from convictions um, and it's worst of all for folks who have CSC um, convictions or um, you know crimes uh, on their record that somehow um, involve uh, sex um, and uh, it's just it's it's awful to see I am very very fortunate to work for an organization that um, recognizes those deficiencies and tries to um, tries to make up for them. It specifically um, does outreach to those who would have the most difficulty finding housing and uh, and tries to house them and make it affordable um, and support them. But um, the organization I work for is the tiniest of tiny fraction of um, of in comparison to what the need is. Um, the need is, is great and it's just heartbreaking um, to see 
how many obstacles there are to stable housing for those um, coming out of the criminal justice system. Um, so what I said a second ago, I kind of forgot to put the, 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 the exclamation point on the sentence, is these things like, it's not just that we think, you know, or I think that people have done bad things before. Uh, and I might have forgotten to say this too. It's not just another thing that most people that I know who are in criminal justice reform believe is that people who have committed crimes, that you're not defined by your worst moments. Right. That you, sh you need to come to grips with your worst moments, but you shouldn't be defined by them. And I think a lot of times what we say when we say that person is a horrible person, what we're really saying is that person did something horrible at a particular time, uh, usually contextually. And I'll talk more about that in a second, but I wanted to say that what I was trying to say is that economic insecurity, housing insecurity, and lack of community connection are the biggest triggers for recidivism. Mm. So you may want, you know, even if you're in your heart of hearts, want to be particularly punitive, very harsh to criminals, the end result of that is, and I say criminals when I really mean formerly incarcerated people or incarcerated people, uh, the end result of that is usually more crime. And so if societal safety is your goal, you know, right. if you if that's a competing goal that you care about, you really should maybe <laughs> take back your punitive right. and maybe be a little more, uh, you know, what I'm talking about, which is the kind of 360 view of trying to make prison and jail more about how people come out than it is about what happens to them, when, you know, when, than it is about how cruel you are when they're in. I think this is a good time for us to... Uh to check into the name that we have in mind for this podcast, which is Decarceration Nation. Can you talk about where that comes from? Yeah, you know, I think when I first started thinking about doing this podcast, I was going to talk about a bunch of different incremental ideas, uh, of which I have a lot. Uh, you know, I've done a lot of, I think you were asking earlier about kind of areas of criminal justice reform. And while I kind of look at it more as how do we get all of these things in more of a system that's built towards success as, a poor, as opposed to a system that's built toward punishment. Uh, there are lots of different areas in which I think reform should happen. But the problem is, is that incrementalism, while it's not bad, and it's probably a necessary thing, should always be foregrounded, in my opinion, with kind of a radical imaginary. What could we do better? How could the system be better? And in my opinion... The system we have now, and this is based on not just my me, me and my own experience, but also a lot of research I've done, and we'll clearly talk about that throughout throughout the the podcasts, uh, is that it, it just doesn't work. The system as it's designed now doesn't work, and as long as we keep trying to tinker and make a bad system good, we're going to keep having failures. It also sets a bar. So if I make an incremental change in say Alabama then people in Alabama who were for criminal justice reform think that it's already happened. And uh, a lot of, it loses a lot of momentum. And so if you don't start out saying, yeah, these reforms are good, but what we're really looking for is fundamental change to the system, right. you know, then you tend to limit the amount of reform that is possible. And we have to have more reform because if we don't, we're going to continue to manufacture failure and I, I think you were going to probably mention that next, some of the studies that, you know, or at least one of the studies that. Right. I want to talk about this uh, super recent, um, I think it might be, maybe you'd call it a meta-study. Um, meta-analysis. Meta-analysis by David Rudman. But before we get to that, um, I want to uh, 
peel back a tiny bit more um, the word decarceration. Mm -hmm. um, can you say more about what that word is pointing towards? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think there's kind of two ways you can look at it. You can look at it as, you know, some people are for getting rid of the prison. I'm for getting people out of the prison. And so to me, decarceration means get as many people out as you can, or at least get as many people into a better system than you can. Uh, you know, there, there probably are things that we have to do to address, you know, psychological problems, social problems, you know, whatever. But this is not a success. What we're doing now is not a successful system. And yeah, and, and, and it's not just, of course, what happens inside of jails and prisons, but what the precursors to jail and prison and also what comes after. I'm, I'm thinking. Yeah, of, I think I should know. probably say something about that, too. Uh, you know, one of the things that, you know, you know, I, as I said earlier, I'm a white middle aged male. I'm not the, in an educated white middle aged male. I'm not the typical person who ends up in prison for the first time at the age of 40, which is what happened to me. Uh, but one thing that I say all the time when I'm giving speeches or when I'm talking to people is it is impossible. I mean, literally, you have to be willfully blind to walk into a jail or prison and not see the structural racism. Mm. And what I mean by that is, compared to the percentage of the population, right. uh, the amount of people of color in prison is overwhelming and impossible. Right. Uh, and, you know, I mean, there are people who will say, well, there's more criminality in certain communities. You know, I'll be more than willing. And one of the things I'll do is on my blog version, when we're posting these things, I'll post links to all the research that we talk about uh, so that, you know, you know that I'm not just making this stuff up as, as we talk. But, you know, I mean, that argument about kind of inherent criminality is such a bad argument and really kind of part of the same systemic racism that causes the structural racism that's represented. I mean, it's, you know, in state prisons, uh, African-American males are five times more likely than, than white males to be put in prison for the same crime. I mean, just that by itself should be enough to make you think that something's wrong with the system. Indeed. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, maybe, uh, if you wouldn't mind for a second, there might be folks who are uncertain um, about the distinction between jail and uh, prison. Um, could you talk about that? Sure. Uh, you know, it's interesting because jail is kind of serves several functions. It's kind of people go to jail before they've gone through the legal process and been sentenced. Uh, generally, people stay in jail when they can't acquire bail, which really means that they can't they don't have the money to get out. And so we have a system. Uh, the jail, the first function a jail serves is holding people if they don't have enough money until their trial date, uh, until their case has been adjudicated. Uh, there's a limit on that in different states. For instance, if it's over a year or things like that, we'll talk about that more at different times. It's not really that important. The second thing that jails do is after you've been sentenced, you can spend up to your first year in jail uh, before until they find a place for you at whatever prison you're going to, I think is the way it works in Michigan. I'm not sure how it works everywhere. So you will have some people who will be in prison who are in jail, but jail is mostly for people who haven't been adjudicated yet. That's the idea. So my experience of these two is, is quite limited, but I have visited uh, folks in jail several times. Um, and I've also um, visited someone in prison uh, here in Michigan once. And 
uh, both environments seemed uh, radically inhumane to me um, and pretty terrible. Um, but when what I what in particular did you find inhumane? Just so yeah, so uh, in both of them, the depersonalization. Um, you know, when I was visiting someone in jail, um, the inability to have uh, direct contact to, to touch somebody, um, uh, the 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 simple appearance of it, um, uh, to walk up to it and um, and to have it be so sterile and um, and demoralizing. That was my experience of visiting someone in jail and. My experience with prison is so limited, but what I would say from, from that experience was it seemed like everything that felt um, bad about jail seemed magnified a thousand times with prison. It just seemed, when I approached this prison, like it was uh, a fortress of negativity, of, of um, just like a, um, an abyss of, um, uh, of isolation. And... Um, I wonder, I guess I'm wondering if my experience, if, if that feels uh, like it matches the way things are. Uh, I think jail on the whole, and I can't speak for all inmates, is probably a little bit more dangerous than prison. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, I think you have a lot more freedom in prison, and I don't mean freedom to like go out and do whatever you want. I mean, you have more yard time. You have So there are benefits you get usually in a prison environment that you don't get in a jail environment. So, uh, and jail is just incredibly dangerous. I mean, there's more violence in jail than, I mean, there's a lot of violence in prison too, but it's just, and you're very close together and it's kind of over, you know, they're both overcrowded, but one's a little worse than the other. My experience was, is that I'd probably rather do time in prison than jail. That said, there's not a lot of hope in either place. And like, I think what you speak to very well is the notion that nobody gets up in either of those places and has anything suggesting to them, anything, they don't encounter anything that suggests to them that a possible, that there's a play, a reason for hope in their lives. Uh, and when people don't have hope in their lives, a lot of bad stuff happens. Wow. Yeah, so um, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking about this, this study. Um, it's called... Uh, the Impact of Incarceration on Crime, this meta-analysis uh, by David Rudman um, of the Open Philanthropy Project. And I want to talk about that for a few minutes um, or more. Um, and I almost wonder, Josh, if by talking about this meta-analysis, we aren't already sort of um, looking at some of the conclusions from which we're going to work our way back in episodes to come. Um, because it's pretty remarkable what David Rudman concludes in this meta-analysis. And just to clarify, this is a study that takes basically every bit of research that's been done on the effects of prison and takes them and puts them all together and comes up with conclusions. That's what we mean by meta-analysis. And some of those conclusions are striking. Um, for instance, early on in this, uh, in this lengthy paper, um, he talks about how efforts to um, reduce time in prison um, or in the criminal justice system or in incarceration, I suppose I should say, um, ultimately lead in our, in our current system to people spending more time incarcerated because they, they get placed um, in prison and then 
uh, and then comes parole, but parole carries with it so many restrictions and so many hair triggers to going right back that ultimately people spend more time incarcerated because of the way the system is set up. Yeah, and I think uh, one thing we should talk about when you talk about, I mean, you've mentioned this before in a different way, is that there's these hair, these hair triggers. Uh, you know, a, 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 a devil's advocate uh, might say, well, that's good. We want a lot of restrictions on people. But if you've ever looked at the list of restrictions, the problem isn't so much the restrictions. It's that they're, they're very indeterminate. Uh, so you can, reasonable people can read them and take very different things from them. And so part of the real thing, and I've been through parole and probation, both of them, and part of the real problem isn't trying to comply, it's knowing how to comply. Uh, and on top of that, there's kind of this philosophy in parole that's predominant, I think, with parole and, and probation officers called uh, trail them, jail them, and nail them. And the idea is to find every excuse to send someone back. And so if you're already, if, you know, you come out and most parole agents think that the best thing to do when you first come out is to really read you the riot act and they just really go after you. It was the most of all the things I went through, the thing that really kind of made me the most hopeless was my first meeting with my parole agent. I remember calling my parents afterwards and saying, I'm lucky enough that they're still alive. Uh, but I called them and I said, I don't know if I can do this. And I just made it through three years of prison and seen some unbelievably terrible things, you know. And I was, this woman had freaked me out so much that I was like, I don't know if I, I, I really honestly have no idea if I can do this. Now I ended up doing fine because, you know, you know, I, I was compliant enough, you know, I was pretty much a compliant person. I didn't ever get any tickets or any, you know, I never got in any of these troubles, but it's very easy for me to see how someone trying to be a hundred percent compliant could easily mess up one of them because they're just impossible to understand in a lot of cases. And you get a lot of contradictory information from your agents. To, to, to your knowledge, is there um, a rationale for why that system? Would yeah, be they believe so? that it. You know, when you're, it's very easy to understand. A parole agent sees. You know, say they have forty people on their caseload every day. They probably see someone go back because there's so many requirements and they're so indeterminate and people. And sometimes it's just people are stupid and do dumb things. Mm -hmm. You know, and the truth is, most of those requirements aren't really related to public safety. And so you're sending people back to prison and jail for things that really probably don't have a lot of impact on public safety. Uh, and that happens over and over and over and over and over again. But if you are a parole agent and you see that every single day, you start to believe, you don't think about the 27 people who didn't commit something every day. You think about the three people who did. And so just like a prosecutor who only remembers the terrible cases, the parole agents because their whole, I mean, if their supervisors, everyone, all they talk about is the mistakes, not the successes. And so the only thing in those agents, of some of them have been there for 20 years, think about is that every day they're dealing with some crisis and they don't think about all the people who succeeded. So by implication, when you talk about decarceration, um, I assume you're talking about an alternative to incarceration that is, the, is not this model, is not the current parole model. Right, I'm definitely not saying, I don't think, you know, I am to some extent a radical, but I don't think that my idea is that we just literally break down the prison and let everybody out and never put anyone in again. Although in some cases, we would never have put many of those people in in the first place mm -hmm. in my model, because for instance, we know for a fact that, you know, prison and jails are a terrible way to deal with addiction. Uh, so diversionary courts, 
uh, harm reduction, things like that, make a lot more sense uh, than putting people in jail for substance abuse. That would be an example of where you might not ever have people in there. But so decarceration to me doesn't mean no, I don't know if I'd call it a prison, but there's no, you know, I'm not saying there should be no uh, way of protecting the public from clear and present dangers. That's not really what I'm saying. I'm saying that the way we do it now is is broken and needs to be fixed at a radical level because it really, it, it is a failure. You know, and I think this is what, you know, you wouldn't keep investing in a business that lost you a million dollars a year. We're losing millions of people, you know. I, if I could, um, if I could quote David Rudman in his uh, analysis on page 131, he says, the best estimate of the marginal impact of incarceration on crime in the U.S. today is zero. He, he's saying that through his, his deep analysis of all of these studies, some of which he talks about replicating himself, I mean, trying to, to, to distill it all, he ultimately comes to the conclusion that, um, that incarceration has no positive impact on crime. Uh, in, in the U.S. And let me mention uh, that one of the really stunning things about that is he's accounting for the fact that all the people who are incarcerated, and we have the highest incarceration uh, rate in the world, that all the people who are incarcerated can't be committing crimes in public. Right. So you've taken all those people out of the equation and the net balance is still not positive. Right. You know, that is failure by any, <laughs> and that's, he goes farther. It's not just that, 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 that as I'm sure you're about to mention. Right, right, right. He totally does. Um, but you, you got me thinking with what you just said, which is, um, why not, uh, Josh, why not knock down the prisons? It, it, isn't the system, uh, by appearances, so broken, um, just so premised upon cruelty and inhumanity that, uh, you know, I, I guess I'm wanting to jump to the... Um, to the conclusion here it seems like we we'd be better off starting from scratch well in a sense i think that's that there's some truth to that and i definitely am not saying that we should continue to have a punitively based system that is mostly based on punishing someone as much as possible and just rolling the dice and seeing what comes out i don't think we should have a you know buildings with no hope in them I don't think we should have buildings with no real meaningful treatment in them. And I don't think we should have buildings with no real hope of rehabilitation or training for a better life. Uh, so in a sense, yes, I am saying we should totally redesign what prisons are. And I'm certainly saying we should stop moving the deck chairs on the Titanic, which is what we're doing now. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I'm not saying everyone, there's a lot of really good criminal justice reform going on right now, so I don't want to make it sound, but... At the end of the day, we have to realize that until all of that changes, yeah. none of it has really changed that significantly. So where um, David Rudman goes is to say there's much, there's as much reason overall, this is a quote, to believe that incarceration increases crime as decreases it, um, which is striking. Yeah, and like I said, if 90% of the people uh, who go to prison come out, you have some people who get, you know, life sentences that aren't can't, you can't get parole for so some people stay in there for longer but if 90 percent are coming back and you actually make people more likely to commit crimes by putting them in prison what and and more likely even related to the amount of time they're taken out of the population you know what is the point you know why are we doing this right. you know what is the what are we getting out of it what's the benefit 
one of the things that was striking for me um, reading uh, his um, his study was um, the thought of um, crime in prison. And, and I don't know, I sort of got the feeling that um, prisons as, uh, as they exist now are like these um, petri dishes where um, folks... Uh, you know, are are further victimized. They, be, they they enter and they become the victims of crime, and uh, and possibly for reasons related to survival, they become um, um, complicit in crime. Um, I can give you some anecdotes. You know, I mean, there's, I mean, you, there are some people who I saw who came in. Actually, when I came in, the first thing that happened was people tried to extort me. Uh, I got really lucky that the person who was in charge of the the block that I first was in, when I say I'm in charge, I mean the prisoner who had the most power in my block, ended up really liking me and deciding not to extort me. That is pure luck. Wow. Uh, I know people who were not that lucky. And I know, you know, so people get victimized uh, when they first come in, especially if they look vulnerable. For their young in particular, they're very vulnerable. Uh, the younger the prisoner, the more likely that they're going to be either extorted. And another thing that happens is you can be extorted as in they know you're never going to be of value to them except as someone to get money from. And I mean by this, the criminal kind of, the, the, the gang kind of elements in the, in the prisons. Uh, and then you have, you know, people who they think can be recruits for them. And so they'll start trying to leverage them to be, uh, to recruit them into the gangs and the criminal enterprises. And so it does become in that level, kind of like a Petri dish, like you were saying, and kind of like some people have called them gladiator academies and other things like that, where it becomes kind of a bunch of people getting together and talking about the best way to commit the kind of crimes that they want to commit. I, you know, I met the vast majority of people I met in prison weren't inherently involved in criminal activities. Uh, in fact, uh, the shocking thing to me was that a lot of the people that I met in prison were just as shocked to have done what they did as uh, the people who they did it to, probably, in a lot of ways. I don't mean that in a sense that one is better than the other. I just mean that it was, you know, that they had no idea they were capable of doing what they did. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a pretty shocking, I mean, I think most people think everybody has this, like, plan and they go in and they're going to do it. And I think even for people who had a plan, there's a difference between of thinking of doing something and actually having done it. And once you realize you're capable of doing it, your life changes in a pretty profound way. Right, right, right. You made me think about how uh, how um, Rudman talks about um, prison as deterrent and how uh, it, it, it isn't as if from the studies that folks who are about to commit a crime stop and consider... Um, you know the 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 criminal justice system it, as that doesn't enter their thoughts as part of the a discernment about whether they're going to commit the crime or not. Well, we'll probably talk about this a lot later, but there's this thing that's a very big pet peeve of mine, which is that most criminal justice reform legislation legislators insist on putting what's called a carve out uh, for non so that the legislation only applies to what are called nonviolent criminals. Mm. And we'll talk about this a lot more, but it's kind of ironic because the crime with the lowest recidivism rate of any kind of crime is murder. And the reason of that is because it's, uh, it's, it's, it's usually either a crime of passion or a very contextual crime. And so, you know, I'm not going to walk in on my wife cheating with someone 400 times. You know, I'm probably going to do that maybe once. And I probably didn't know that my reaction would be to kill my wife's lover or whatever but that happens 
you know, I'm just using that as an example, but, you know, the nonviolent crimes have a much higher recidivism rate, but we do these because there's a million reasons why that's a dumb idea. We can talk about it a different time, but I just raised that because that's a pretty good example of how we kind of, you know, take, you know, we the way we look at things is probably wrong. That's, uh, it reminds me, um, I, there's a, uh, a, a prison ministry, an interfaith uh, prison ministry that I have appreciated and admired for a very long time. And I remember in talking with the folks who run um, that ministry that um, in many cases, uh, the lifers, um, who I think uh, were often folks who had committed murder, um, were uh, some of the folks who um, were most eager for positive connection and, and who were some of the sages inside um, prison, they said, for some of the younger folks. It, it seemed like, in many cases, the folks um, who committed those most serious crimes, the ones you just spoke about, um, are uh, were the, the most stable folks. Well, and both of us, you know, I'm not going to mention people by name, but both of us obviously were very close to one of those people who passed away, unfortunately, a little over a year ago. Yeah, yeah, uh, no doubt. A, a person who, in, in some ways, I think of almost um, as having a, like a saintly capacity and, and truly a person of um, inherent compassion and wisdom. Um, yeah, thanks for invoking, invoking him. Um, so, um, Josh, um, I'm not sure um, how much deeper we want to go into um, Rudman's analysis. There's, it's, there's so much there, and we can almost get back to it. Yeah, uh, uh, one yeah. of the things I really wanted to say, and why I think we started with this Rudman piece, is because uh, it really does kind of set up the idea of decarceration nation, which I know is a pithy name and all that, but you know, it really is kind of what I'm thinking about in terms of this is just talking about the need for a radical restructuring of our the ideas. And one thing I, you know, for anyone who, and I'll link this to the stuff, one place that I look to uh, for kind of ideas for radical reform has been the Brennan Center, and they have a there's an act in the Senate right now, a bill in the Senate right now called the Reverse Mass Incarceration Act that came out of a piece of work they did several years ago, and I'll link to it. But that's a pretty good idea of like kind of the radical reimagining of, 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 of prison that I'm talking about. So since this is uh, just our first episode and um, we've got so much more to cover uh, in conversations to come, um, I wonder... Uh, you know, of course, um, I'm aligned with you in uh, in the hope for a radical realignment of um, how we um, how we do all this as a society. But if there were um, something that uh, maybe wasn't radical, if if there were um, a, a change on the margins um, that you think is attainable in the short term, one small way to impact this um, in the near future. I, I'm curious, um, uh, what is something, you know, putting aside the radical transformation of how criminal, of how criminal justice works in this country, what is um, an initial incremental improvement or change that you would, you would wish for? Well, I think, you know, there's so many different areas of reform that I'm concerned with that it's hard for me to just say one thing. I do think outcome-based budgeting is a really important part of prison reform. 
And uh, what I mean by that is that instead of being rewarded for housing prisoners or, or budgets being allocated for reward for uh, housing prisoners, uh, which is what the status quo is, uh, budget should be based around successful outcomes. And by that, I mean reducing recidivism. Yeah. Uh, and if budgets and, 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 and uh, how people were remunerated throughout the prison system and throughout the private prison system and through privatization of different elements of the prison system were remunerated <laughs> on, <laughs> on you know, the outcomes that they achieve with prisoners as opposed to the, uh, the, the uh, housing of prisoners, then I think we'd be in a much better situation. Uh, a lot of the reforms that I've written the most about are about employment uh, training and opportunities. And so one thing that I'm a very big proponent of is that departments of correction should ensure that all people they contract with, because they have the power to make contracts with, like, for instance, vendors or people who bring in their food, people who bring in their, you know, whatever it is, uh, that all of their vendors are involved in both the training of incarcerated people while they're incarcerated and the hiring of incarcerated of people as they're released. And to me, that would make a pretty big difference because while all departments of corrections have some kind of employment programs, uh, you know, to varying degrees, I don't find them to be particularly uh, well-developed or uh, all-encompassing. And the more opportunity, and it seems like their contracting power is a really good place to start with that. I have a lot of other ideas about that, but that's one what I would, that I, I feel like at a base level would send the message to, uh, you know, in a lot of ways that prisons are about rehabilitation and about uh, getting people ready for return, not about just punishment. That seems like such a, a, a no-brainer um, and uh, so simple and, and, and profound and, uh, and commonsensical. The idea that those who um, are connected to the prison system and, and the criminal justice system, that, that they should demonstrate by their actions some type of investment in, um, in improving the lives and in, in, of, of folks who are coming out of the system and making their lives work better for One everybody. One of the biggest problems with what I would call the moral hazard of corporate involvement in prisons is that they're profiting off of people that they have no investment in. And this, those, these kind of reforms are what reverses that. You have to have an investment in the people or it's always going to be corrupt, in my opinion. It seems, you know, not that we should be just shocked by, um, you know, the deficiencies in our society, but it, it just seems uh, so astonishing that all, all these different entities that are connected to this prison industrial complex have no investment in, in seeing people be well and seeing people's lives be better and until we make that connection part of how prison is done the outcomes can't possibly change in my opinion is there any um uh, legislation any any um uh, any domains where you see that happening well like i said uh, there is a bill languishing in the senate that was uh, put out by cory booker uh that in the federal system that is based in is, is an outcome-based budgeting model and, and like I said, that comes from the Brennan Center. Uh, we'll talk about this a little bit in a second, but, you know, hopefully I'll have an interview with a couple of the people from the Brennan Center or interviews with a couple of people from the Brennan Center coming in future episodes. I know Lauren Brooke Eisen has already agreed. She's the one who came up with 
uh, the what has become the Reverse Mass Incarceration Act. So uh, when I talk to her, uh, we'll probably cover that. And I think um, something that comes to mind from early in our earlier in our conversation, actually, where we started is, and I liked how you got us going, Josh, by talking about um, those who were ill, in, in particular um, those um, suffering from mental illness. Um, it seems like if uh, if we're going to make an impact, if we're going to start to um, look at this with new eyes, uh, another place to consider as an entry point are are those who um, whose whose mental illness or whatever is 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 compounded, is made harder, is made more difficult um, uh, by incarceration and, and by the way they're treated um, by the criminal justice system. Um, should we end with um, some of the recent news of the day? Um, sure. Yeah, there's... Well, we should end on Martin Luther King, but we'll... Yes, <laughs> good, 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 good. Um, so recently there was this federal guidance on uh, Medicaid and workfare, and I wonder if you could comment on, um, on how you see that fitting in. Okay, so the Trump administration issued guidance last week that was dealing with uh, allowing states that wanted to have a workfare requirement for Medicaid expansion, so that means for health care, uh, for people who are under, you know, who qualify for Medicaid expansion, uh, that they can do that. They can have a workfare requirement. Now, we, first of all, a huge percentage of returning citizens, which is what we call people who are coming out of prison, uh, are on the Medicaid expansion. So this is a huge, a huge impact to the people coming out. And you're probably going to say, well, they should work. And yeah, okay, we'll, we'll have that discussion. But the research is overwhelming that workfare requirements are a disaster. If you look at what they did, they did these with food stamps. Uh, they've done this with a bunch of other, uh, a bunch of other what are considered to be welfare, and it's been a total failure in every possible way. So much to the point that the researchers suggest that cynically that it is probably the idea was to destroy the system more than it was to create a more workable system. Uh, also, in particular to Medicaid, there's very good research that suggests that the vast majority, overwhelming majority of people either are working, are trying to work, or are incapable of working for medical reasons. So the idea that you make it harder for those people to get their benefits because they have to jump through a bunch of hoops is uh, really problematic. And I'll attach, again, uh, on the blog version of this, a link to some of the things I've written on this subject and to all the research on this subject. Uh, but yeah, that's a that huge impact on formerly incarcerated people and a really another one of the barriers that you put in the way to any kind of economic reconnection to society when people, if they're sick, can't get health care. And uh, if I'm not healthy, it's going to be very hard for me to uh, contribute to society in a, in, a, in a positive way. All right. Um, it does seem uh, meaningful that we're recording this uh, on MLK Day, on Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, birthday. Um, and Josh, I wonder if you couldn't take us out with a, a reflection on how um, Martin Luther King, um, you know, how there's a connection between his legacy and, um, and his movement and um, these subjects we're talking about. Well, I think one way we already talked about, which is that the mass incarceration, what, what we call mass incarceration, which really happened, started happening in the 80s, well after uh, the untimely passing of uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, is has been incredibly uh, 
racially constructed. Uh, the war on drugs is one of the main drivers of that and that disproportionately affects people of color, not because they're more likely to do drugs, but in the, in the enforcement of the war on drugs. Uh, so I think he would be horrified if he'd seen what had happened to communities of color as a result of the war on drugs. I think there would have been, I think if he was doing anything now, he would be, that would be probably the center of what he was doing is trying to redress the, 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 the racial disparity in prisons and jails, and particularly to the war on drugs. And as we know, when he was uh, shot, he was working on what's called the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, and the reason for that is because uh, we have this tendency to uh, kind of leave the poor to their own devices and think that they're kind of uh, responsible, you know, basically to blame for their own situations. And that they're really, if from a biblical perspective at least, the people we should be most concerned with uh, making sure that we're not only taken care of, but that we're keeping close to our hearts. Uh, you know, I often uh, talk about Matthew 25, uh, especially the, the paragraph about, you know, the, the, the stranger and the prison and uh, did you feed me, did you clothe me? And the reason, and I don't want to mean to get super religious, but uh, the reason that I think that's so important is because it's, it's, it's kind of a foundational element of the ethics of my faith, which is Christianity. Uh, and it's very strange to me that, you know, we've kind of moved in an opposite direction. I think it was very uh, foundational to, uh, to Dr. King's uh, messages. Uh, the last thing I want to say, though, is that one of the things that's the most frustrating for me about watching kind of the legacy of Dr. King uh, discussed and, you know, is how many, and I, you know, for lack of a better term, how many uh, white people like to talk about the I Have a Dream speech from the perspective that the point of the I Have the Dream speech is that we should never have benefits for anyone that are based on color or whatever. Because to my understanding of the speech, that takes a lot of the speech out of context. The paragraphs before uh, that part of the speech were all based in the material inequality and of, of people of color in the United States. And the idea was that he is aspirationally get, hoping that we can get to a place where that is possible, but it is not possible. And if you look at things like mass incarceration, you know it's still not possible today because we don't have equality in principle. And until we have equality in principle for all people, we can't treat all people equally because they're not equal. Right? And so to me, the idea that we are already, you know, that we have to enforce colorblindness as a way of stopping prejudice is insanity. You know, uh, and I, you know, just using mass incarceration as one one marker. There's plenty of other ones. Uh, I don't know what are your thoughts because you, I'm sure, have some. I I couldn't say it more better or more beautifully. Ultimately, we're on that as we wind up this conversation. Josh is in awe of your mind, of your eloquence, of your research, um, and most of all, your willingness to share your own um, life experience um, because I know that um, you know as someone who is not learned in this has not had um, direct one-on-one -on -one experience with the criminal justice system um, I feel like um, listening to you um, learning from you 
helps me to um, to have a deeper sense of compassion, um, a broader sense of awareness for uh, what the returning citizens whom I work with have to deal with, and um, it gives me some ideas or thoughts for um, for possibly where I can begin um, to impact this um, for the better and to address the, the madness that is woven into this broken system. And I want to thank you for so generously sharing of your life and your knowledge and your critical thinking and your time and space on this podcast for for me to behold um, uh, what really are critical insights for anyone who wants to live in a better world. Well, Joel, you do some pretty good work yourself. <laughs> I don't know. I'm kind of blushing over here. Uh, you know, it's seriously, when you've been on the inside and you've seen this stuff, you kind of got to, I felt like you have to start speaking out. I mean, there's just, and we haven't even touched the tip of the iceberg on a lot of stuff we're going to talk about. But, uh, you know, so there'll be interviews. We're going to keep doing uh, discussions like this. Uh, hopefully you all enjoy it. Uh, for those of you who don't, you know, you'll, I think you'll find that I'm a pretty, I'm very respectful of other opinions and I'll definitely engage in conversations as long as they seem to be remaining productive. Uh, so I, I, I welcome discussions as long as they're, you know, civil. Uh, and I realize a lot of people probably disagree with me, so I, I have no problem with that. <laughs> and everyone has a right to their opinion. My job is to persuade you if I don't do a good job of that, then that's my fault. Uh, and, uh, so anyway, it's really, really fun to do this with you, Joel. I'm glad we, we started it, and I hope everyone enjoyed it, and uh, see you next time. Thanks, Josh.